You sit alone in a prison cell, sitting on the edge of your bed, little more than blankets tossed on top of a wooden frame, harsh, hard, sharp edges that give you no rest, least of all tonight. The night before you are to hang on the gallows, you don't know what time it is. You suspect it's past midnight. The full moon is visible through the bars that prevent you from reaching out and seizing freedom. There are no lights on outside your cell. Yet the full moon floods this tiny stone chamber in enough ambient light for you to see your face reflected in the puddle of water that pools on the compacted dirt floor at your feet. What are your thoughts on this night, the last night of your life? Thoughts are to God. How can I to explain my actions to my maker? Yeah. Thoughts to God. How you're going to explain actions to your maker. You hear footsteps coming from the hall outside your cell. The jingle of keys. Suddenly fists rap on the thick metal door. Pierce! Hear me in there! I... don't answer. Pierce! You best get away from the door, lad. Don't you be crowding round it. I want to see you on that bed, sitting up against the wall. Go! I sit myself into a relaxed position. Relaxed position, sitting on your bed, waiting for whomever shall enter. Hear the jingling of keys once again, and then the click of a lock. And then with a great groan, the metallic door swings open. Standing on the other side is the guard. He hasn't bothered to tell you his name. Perhaps he doesn't feel it's worth his time. But the man standing beside him is one who you've come to know over these past few nights as you draw ever close to death. This is Father Connolly. As he steps into the cell and pushes the door shut behind him, it slams with a loud clang, exchanges a silent look with the guard and then turns to face you. He's dressed in his finest priest garb, his collar pure white, silver chain around his neck with an ornate crucifix dangling off the end. And in the pale moonlight, his skin looks almost as if it's devoid of blood. He looks like a death incarnate. Evening, Pierce, he says. Evening, Father. Come to talk to me of God before I meet him. Yes, quite. 
he says he makes his way over to your bed and surprisingly he makes a hand movement requesting your permission to sit down next to you I sit up straight and then make room for him he sits down delicately carefully on the edge of your bed the frame rattles all the while the guard just stands there watching the two of you stony faced his back to the door father Connolly looks at you studying you intently he says hmm you are to meet the gallows tomorrow at 9am you shall see the sunrise only once more in your life and then you shall meet your maker tell me Pierce when you think of meeting your maker do you also expect that there will be others waiting for you waiting for you to make yourself accountable to them men such as Dalton Boddenham Travers, Brown, Greenhill, and the others, as you sit here, coming to terms with your own mortality, do you not see their faces in your mind's eye even now? I... Speaker at my own church. Father, you cannot seriously in this demon's land expect me to meet God. I think it is something far more fiery waiting for me. The flames of hell, of eternal damnation, says Father Connolly, smiling slightly and as he smiles, you can't help but notice all of his teeth razor sharp like canines. And as he breathes, you catch the very slightest scent of blood emanating from within his mouth. I sit down and go. Hell will be fiery, Father. I think it'll be cold, it will be worse. I think it'll be hungry. Even now as I hunger. Nothing seems to satiate me anymore. Now that I've tasted that which is forbidden. Father Connolly leans in closer. His smile grows ever so slightly wider. And he says, yes, so you think you will not meet the flames, at least not yet. You are right about one thing. Whatever happens to you from this point onwards, now that you've tasted the hunger, you shall never taste anything else. He looks over his shoulder towards the guard. They exchange a silent glance. He seems to stare into the guard's face, perhaps into his very soul. 
And then Father Connolly lowers his voice and softly whispers, Stand in the hall outside. When we emerge, make yourself comfortable under the covers of the bed. When they come for you in the morning, go for them. The guard nods, his face blank, expressionless, and then he just turns, steps out of the cell, slowly pulls the door shut behind him. Now, alone with Father Connolly, you're suddenly filled with this strange sense of apprehension. Father Connolly stares into your face and he says, You are not one of us. And yet, yet, when I look upon you, when I've heard of what you did, when I learned of the fate that befell Travers and Greenhall and the other bushrangers with whom you escaped, I found myself most unusually fascinated. You act as if you are not human, as if you are possessed by some monstrous force that compels you to prey upon those who until now have been your kin. Is the boy you're doing, Father? The one I escaped with after the one I ate? The one for whose life I now hang? Connolly says nothing. Instead, he lets your words linger. Then he turns to face you, reaches out, places both of his hands on your shoulder, one on each. He looks into your face and he says, You do not need to hang for the life of a child. I offer you that choice on the eve of what is to be the end of your life, I come to offer you a way out, a salvation, an escape from eternal damnation. I look in the eye. Perhaps it's better that I hang. I have a hunger now. Nothing ever tastes quite as good. And yet, says Connolly, it is that hunger that you may use as a way out of your predicament that is not the hunger of humans, Pierce. It is something more base, yet more refined by the same token, and he smiles fully now, revealing his teeth, and it is now you realise that each of them in his mouth is a sharp, knife-like point, and on some of them flecks of what must surely be dried blood. You I'm smell the stench of death on him. I take a step back. I'm 
acutely aware of him now. The father clutches one hand around his crucifix, removing it from your shoulder. And then he takes a step towards you, shuffling ever closer. And he says, I offer you salvation, not a way to redeem yourself for what you've done, but a way to make your peace with that hunger, that craving that has been born within you. I grant you this chance, this offer, only now. You, Pierce, fascinate me. And I want you. I want you to use that hunger to serve me. Looking scared from the rope, perhaps I'm interested. Serves many, Master. What is one more? Now, one more who understands your peculiarities and not shuns them, but hones them. So, uh, to be a priest, Father. Alas, he removes his hand from the crucifix. Not in the traditional sense, but under my tutelage, you will develop a sense of the spiritual. Learn to peer beyond the simple reality that humans comprehend and learn that your purpose is something greater. Why then? You can get me away from the rope, I will serve you faithfully. He smiles, baring those awful teeth. We shall see, he says. We shall see. And then, then that feeling of apprehension in your brain. It snaps. It's instantly replaced by a spasm of terror as, like a demon, the father lunges forward, sinking his teeth into the side of your neck. Searing pain surges up your spine and into your brain stem. I claw his face, trying to push him away. He growls like a beast, and no matter how hard you try, you cannot budge him. He forces your flailing arms away with what seems to be the lightest touch of a finger and drives his razor-sharp teeth in greater. You feel your vessels begin to seize. You feel your organs begin to pulsate with excruciating pain. Your heart beats faster and faster and faster and then it stops. And that is how you die. The overwhelming blackness takes you. It seems to last for an eternity. Nothingness, no awareness, no thought, no passing time. 
the priest claimed to save you from the rope and here you are in the place beyond on the edge of oblivion eternal oblivion and then then you become aware of something a noise in the distance first nothing more than a distant buzz like an insect like a mosquito hovering around you you reach up your hand in your groggy half-conscious state to smack away the insect and then you realize where you are you feel the cold wind blowing on your face you open your eyes you lie on the ground on the dirt cold wet blades of grass form a bed underneath you it is night deep night everything around you is shrouded in shadow you're aware only of two things to your left something angular and black and to your right emerging out of the darkness a silhouette calling your name a female voice Pierce Alexander Alexander are you okay can you hear me can you you're covered in blood instinctively grasp at my neck feeling for the wound the wound is gone and yet your skin is damp you pull yourself up into a seating position and you realize that your garments are stained wet with blood the silhouette stands in front of you still making her way towards you still shrouded in darkness and your vision still obscured by these strange feelings of sleepiness mixed with there it is the hunger rising within you greater and greater than you've ever felt it before you cannot discern her face alexander she calls out i i thought you hung on the gallows and then someone told me you were here in the cemetery and please you spring to your feet suddenly possessed by an unnatural vigor you see this woman ahead of you grab by the shoulders and I go I need meat Alexander you what are you doing her face screws up in terror you bare your teeth I need meat the beast inside you roars kill her it's father Connolly's voice shouting at you tear her apart uh, to resist hunger willpower it is willpower plus a third of your humanity rounded down so full willpower of six uh, now is there blood dice in there this? is no blood dice in this so we've got four plus here uh, that is two successes. Two successes. 
To resist a hunger frenzy while at f- hunger four or higher is difficulty three. You fight. You, you know you shouldn't be doing this. And the woman's voice hangs on the edge of your consciousness. It's so familiar. And yet, so far, you are overwhelmed. You bare your teeth. And as the woman screams, you sink them into her throat, ripping out her windpipe like a savage animal. She gurgles, death throes, Blood spurting from the fresh wound into your face. You throw her to the ground. And I gorge myself. And you gorge yourself, tearing away her skin, sinking your teeth into her flesh, grabbing your hands into her carcass, pulling out her organs and sinking your teeth into them, swallowing the wet flesh. Your senses return. The hunger subsides. Father Connolly's voice within your mind grows quieter and quieter, soothed by what you have done. And then you stare down into the face of the woman you killed. It is Elise, your lover. I scream Father Connolly's name into the night. You scream his name into the night. Connolly! As if you were praying to the Lord in your darkest hour, he answers. You hear his boots crunching on the damp dirt over the gravel and grass. And then he stands beside you over the body of the mutilated woman. And then he smiles, those terrible teeth, his pale, deathly skin glowing in the pale moonlight. And he says, Now there remains nobody to miss you. What have you made me? What have I? He gestures towards the angular object to your left. You turn and face it. And now, now that your mind is clearer, the fog dispelled by this terrible act, you register that it is a tombstone, a fresh tombstone. The carvings still still glimmering fresh from the artisan's hand. You see your own name, Alexander Pierce, and the date of your death, July 19th, 1824. Thirty years pass. It is 1854. Thirty years since you died. Almost as long as you were alive. And yet, according to your sire, you are but a baby, a neonate, still naive to the world of the kindred. 
with Father Connolly guiding you through your first nights, through those torturous early years, you have become a master of your art, a skilled apex predator. And it is these skills and that terrible, unsatiable hunger that allowed you to help Father Connolly establish himself as the secret master of Van Diemen's land. And now he turns his attention elsewhere, over the Tasman. The gold rush has begun in the colony of Victoria and in the city of Melbourne, the fastest growing settlement on the new frontier. The fledgling Camarilla are growing rich and influential off these treasures brought from the northern gold fields. Your sire tells you that it's unlikely that any of these treasures will be used for the service of the colony. Most of them will likely end up in the hands of the Camarilla's lords back in Europe. And if the fledgling Camarilla is able to bolster their influence over the newly established colony, then it's only inevitable that they may, may decide that Van Diemen's land is their next possible expansion. And so Father Connolly has sent you across the Tasman to Melbourne, to the capital of Victoria, to secure wealth, influence, and glory in his name, any way that you see fit. You will be on your own there, his voice echoes in the back of your mind. And I will not be able to guide you. I release you from under my care and into the world of the kindred. You are but a neonate, but your potential is great. And this shall be your test. If you succeed, then you will become a kindred who is influential within his own right, worthy of being my equal. And if you fail, well, perhaps the damnation you escaped that night 30 years ago will find you after all. You find yourself awakening. The blood begins to surge through your dead body, enabling you to move. You open your eyes and find yourself awakening in pitch black darkness. Go ahead and make a rouse check for me. Um, pass, pass. You're at hunger one. There's momentary disorientation. Try to realize, remember where you are. There's no, no room to move. You're lying straight and thin, almost as if you're packed in a box. And then you remember you are packed in a box. 
a wooden crate that for the last several nights has rested in the cargo hold of a schooner travelling from the port of Hobart to Melbourne. You no longer feel the subtle rocking of the ocean. The ground beneath you is firm and still. You must have finally reached port and they have carried you off the ship. I just wait in the darkness. I feel around to see if I can locate her, a rat, or something that's straight too close to me. You pat your arms to your left and right. The box is far too small for a wayward rodent to find its way in, and that would mean it would not be airtight. You would have burnt to a crisp, but... Your sire did not let you leave unprepared. You feel the wood damp under the palm of your hand and you realise that all around you, puddles of blood have sunken into the wood. You are surrounded by pieces of preserved flesh, enough to last you the journey over the Tasman and to serve as breakfast when you awaken. Satiating it. It tastes stale, dusty. It's clearly several days old, but there is still nourishment there. As you bite into it, you feel your senses returning. Go ahead and make for me a wits and awareness roll. One success in the hunger dice. Two successes, one in the hunger dice. Yep. Muffled by the thick wood, you hear two things. First, the sound of waves lapping against the shore, smacking against the underside of the jetty. And then, two voices. All right, that's the last one off the ship. What's the time we got? Another voice. Oh, it's just about 7.30, it is a happy hour down the pub if we make it. Oh, I've been looking forward to an ale all day, I have, says the first voice. Come on, let's get our pay from the Arbor Master and, uh, well, you still owe me three shillings from last time, don't you? There's a laugh and then the first voice. The other voice says, yeah, yeah, I got it. All right, first round's on me. Come on, let's go. As soon as their voices disappear into the darkness, I begin kicking at the side of the crate. Go ahead and make for me a strength and athletics check. Uh, that is two successes. You clench your fists 
and then you punch upwards, bang, crash, and then kick out with your right foot. The wood splinters and you see the ambient moonlight begin to leak, flood into the small box. A few minutes later, the lid is matchwood. You stand up, step out of the box and peer down in looking into it. The floor is drenched in days old blood, half eaten bits of shapeless flesh. What's left of the lid has two words stenciled into it. Don't open. You look around. There are several other similar wooden crates stacked high around you. Several piles of them. They're stamped with various labels. Tea, lumber, tobacco, whiskey. The air is cold. The wind viciously pelting you and you can smell salt in the air. You appear to be in the harbour. As you climb out of what has been your whole world for the past few nights, Alexander, would you please describe what you look like, what you're wearing, what anyone would see if they were to witness this moment? They see a slight man tufts of barely kept facial hair because I've been unable to shave in the confines of my box. My hair is long and bedraggled. I wear a blood-stained shirt buttoned up and neatly and suspenders holding up some workman's pants over it concealing the spoiled nature of my shirt is a long leather coat typical of the farmer buttoned tight over my frame and in my mouth is a set of dentures crude wire things that hold remarkably human-like teeth And let us not forget your most precious companion hanging from your belt just inside your coat so that it may be retrieved at a moment's notice. A woodcutter's hatchet, the very same one that you used in the murders that landed you in Hobart Prison all those years ago and it too 
has been with you every step of the way into this strange and often terrifying world. You now stand in the Melbourne Harbour, the inky black waters of the Yarra River lap and smash against the bottom of the jetty. The harbour is lit by gaslight, gas lamps dotted along the edge of the road, past an empty dirt lot of wooden crates, barrels and other cargo that's yet to be stamped, processed and taken away to a warehouse. Here and there you can see a couple of dock workers still going about their business but they seem to be wrapping up for the night. You hear your heavy boots crunching on the damp wood. You remember your sire's parting advice. The Camarilla City's answer to the prince, and the prince decrees that any kindred entering his domain present themselves to him. But we are not of the Camarilla. Sect politics mean nothing to us. Our purpose is to carve our own way to plumb and understand the mysteries of death and what awaits beyond. It is up to you what you will do first when you arrive in Melbourne, but I would suggest finding a place to call your own. The Camarilla will have declared most of the city their domain, but very few kindred at least that I am aware of, lay claim to graveyards and mortuaries. So, here you are. For the first time in 30 years, you are acting under your own power. What is the first thing you do? I had to the nearest watering hole. You make your way across the harbour out onto Great Collins Street, the main street of Melbourne, and to your eye, to someone who was born in the old country, to someone who has seen true civilization, the only place in this city worthy of being called a street. The road is nothing more than compacted dirt, well trod with hoof marks and cart tracks, but it's flanked on both sides by rows of red brick facades, permanent structures, a bank, a post office, a stock exchange, general stores, office buildings, and there's even a paved cobblestone footpath lit once again by gas lamps. Even at this late hour, 
past seven, as you heard before. There are still people going about their business, a few throngs of people here and there, mostly sailors and workers by the looks of them. There's even a carriage or two making its way down the street. The rest of Melbourne, as far as you can see from here, is nothing more than ramshackle cabins and little shacks that look like they would fall down if hit with anything stronger than an average gust of wind. Go ahead for me and please make a resolve plus investigation check if you would like to try to find a watering hole of your own accord or if you'd like to ask someone for directions, go ahead and make me a charisma plus either streetwise or persuasion check. Charisma streetwise. That is five successes total. Critical. Five successes. You make your way through the dirt road, waiting for a carriage to pass, the horse clopping down the road, and then you start walking along the footpath. You look for someone who might be agreeable to your kind of character, and you spy a group of rough-looking sailors as they stumble down the footpath towards you. They're barely able to stand upright, and they're jostling each other, elbowing each other. Hey, you made the promise, Fred. Next time we're there, you've got to give her a big kiss right there on the cheek. <laughs> She'll knock him flat on his ass, won't she, Joe? <laughs> They see you walking towards them and you raise your hand in greeting and what do you say? Friends, I'm new to this city. Perhaps you could um, uh, direct me to the nearest, uh, well, somewhere where I can get a drink to start with, get orientated. The jostling men stop and they look you up and down, they see you wearing the outfit of a worker, and they notice that you've come from the direction of the harbour. So they sense you as kin, a sailor or a dockhand like then. One of them steps forwards and he claps you on the shoulder like an old friend and he says, <laughs> fresh off the boat and looking to wet the whistle before you've even dug into work. <laughs> A man after my own heart, ain't that right, Fred? He elbows the man next to him. Look, uh, you want the crown. Uh, head down the street there and you'll see it about two blocks away on the corner. You won't be able to miss it. It's got caters to a lot of our type and uh, good friends, good food and good drink. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. You just leave them walking along and they watch you for a few moments and then go back to jostling, laughing and singing. Continue down Collins Street, passing a few more people. Some of them give you a second glance. Some of them even seem to stop, take a few steps away from you as if they're unsettled, even though all you're doing is walking down the street. You're not... You're used to this kind of behaviour. 
even before you were a kindred, your visage being emblazoned on wanted posters, made people turn and run in the other direction as soon as they seen you, as soon as they saw you. Upon becoming a kindred, as your sire explained, there's something about you, something that the prey can sense. The rat always knows when it's in with weasels. The rat always knows when it's in with weasels. But sure enough, eventually, you come to the crown, here on the corner of Collins Street and an as-yet-unnamed little alleyway, a narrow dirt road that wends in between two brick buildings and down a hill. And it certainly seems to fit the description you were given. There's no sign or anything like that, but the lights are on inside and you can hear the jolly laughter of drunken sailors enjoying their night. I step in walk up to the bar. As you step into the bar, a bell rings couple of the sailors look up from their tables, but they quickly look away. No one seems to really notice. No one seems to really notice that you're there. The inside of the bar is cramped, dusty, only dimly lit. There's a single gas lamp sitting on the edge of the bar that's somehow providing just enough light for people to be able to see what they're drinking. Make your way over to the bar and you take a seat. There's no one else sitting at the bar. Everyone else is at the tables. The bartender, a solidly built mustachioed man, looks up at you, he raises an eyebrow and he says, new face. Don't recognise you. Seamus. Seamus, right. Bertram, he holds out a hand. I reach out my hand and I take it in his shaking firmly. What can I... Where can I get a good stuff? Good thirsty after my travels. Good stout. I got one right here, he says. He turns around. You see him retrieve a glass from under the counter. He walks over to a tap and begins pumping the glass full of beer. As he hands it to you, he says, Been a long way, have you? What? Come down from Ballarat or... Across uh, the Strait. Across the Strait, Van Diemen's Land. Hmm, long way. Didn't even know anyone had heard of the gold down there, but uh, I guess we're seeing all types these days. Uh, I even saw some Chinamen a couple days ago. As nestles down the bar and I slide a pair of copper pennies over the bar, and I nestle into my drink, not really sipping at it, but nursing it. Nursing it? Don't suppose you could... You know where I could find some evenings entertainment? Make a manipulation subterfuge check for me, please. 
two, three, four successes. Bertram looks you up and down, and then looking left and right to make sure no one's listening in, he leans across the bar and he says, All right, I get what you're saying. Now, Governor says, No whoring allowed in the colony, right? But... You've seen how many sailors and workers are in this fine city. So you can always find what you're looking for. What you want to do is uh, head down the little side street just yonder way. He points outside the bar. He says, head down to the very end. The large house at the end of the street, bigger than the others. You want to go there, knock three times on the front door. And when Johnson answers on the other side, tell him that you've come to peruse the latest high street fashion. It's a little bit of a joke. <laughs> you see, petticoats and top hats, well, no one would be caught dead in them here, at least not on Collins Street. I take it, means. All right, well, thanks to the tip. I clap him on the shoulder one more time. Before I leave, I'd like to activate um, Enhanced Senses. Yep. Uh, is that a rouse check? For the that is one? not a rouse check, it's free. Um, specifically hearing. I'm just going to sort of cast a, a ear over the conversation and see if I can pick up anybody speaking. Say words I'm familiar with, so to speak. Yep, so go ahead for me. Make a wits awareness roll, add your awe specs to it. Four successes. So you sit there, nursing your drink. You listen, piercing into the chatter around you. Most of it's menial. It's men after work making bets, talking big, having play fights, insulting each other. But in a booth over at the very back of the bar, isolated from everyone else, you see... A single man wearing blue overalls over a dirty white shirt. He has the look of a miner or prospector about him, and he's angrily grumbling to the man sitting across from him. <laughs> yeah, no, you wouldn't even believe it. Uh, look, I dug up... Uh, Nice nugget and some other goodies, and they're still up in Ballarat because Matthew Bloody Cousins says all shipping stopped, trains aren't making their way up through G Town, and when I told him that I've got precious gold waiting there and that anyone can up and steal it, he just said that his uh, kindred souls were taking care of it. <laughs> Well, if I get it back and a single 
particle is missing, <laughs> I'll be reporting him to the constabulary. Don't you worry about it. Alright, yeah, that will take my uh, leave and go. Um, I head down the side street um, that the barman mentioned and knock on yep. the... So you make your way down the side street. It's just a dirt trail running down a hill lined by ramshackle houses made out of wood and corrugated iron and you easily find the one you're looking for. It's the only actual permanent structure. Two stories and furnished in quite handsome uh, Victorian style. You step up the patio, walk towards the front door and rap on it three times. You hear something latch on the other side and then a voice says, No solicitors, piss off! I'm here to serve the ladies of high fashion. Oh, a customer! Hold on. You hear another click and then the door opens, revealing a short but portly man wearing a ill-fitting business suit and a top hat that is so lopsided on his head that it looks as if he probably got it in a second-hand clothing store. Looks you up and down, he says, Oh, haven't seen you around here before, but uh, I suppose you know the password. Come on in, come on in. And he beckons for you to enter. Once you're inside, he pushes the door shut behind you and he leads you into an entrance hall. A long red carpet runs from the door through the entrance hall and down a hallway that leads onwards. Distantly, you can hear the sound of men's voices and laughing women. The man stops. He holds out his hand and he says, well, if you're going to be a regular, I suppose we should start off on the right foot. Johnson O'Toole. Shameless. I shake his hand. He shakes your hand. He says, so, uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, who sent you? It's just so I uh, know who to, uh, who to ask when I need someone to vouch for you and I turn to him and I go, don't worry, I'm no petty police officer. I wish to speak to the propriety, please. He shrugs and he says, well, I wouldn't be worried if you were police. Don't worry. Looks like they need some feminine attention every now and then as well, if you know what I mean. But proprietor, well... You're acting like this is some sort of big, legitimate establishment, my friend. You're looking at him. Um, does he appear to be kindred to me? No. He looks to be perfectly mortal. If he's kindred, he's doing a good job to hide it. Though here, in the entrance hall, the light is particularly dim. 
there's no lamp. The only light is the light that's flooding in from whatever's down the hallway where you can hear the voices. I turn to him and I go, an establishment like this, while small, provides a steady stream of customers and privacy with said customers that tracks a certain kind of proprietor I've found. So, I wish to speak with the proprietor. Make a manipulation subterfuge or intimidation check. I will go for intimidation. I won't bear my fangs yet for the bonus, but... Manipulation... Manipulation and intimidation? Yep. There's two successes. The man opens his mouth once again to tell you there's no other proprietor but he, but then he thinks twice of it. He seems to finally get your drift. He sighs and he says, All right, come with me, but he's not going to be happy if you barge in without an appointment. I say nothing and gesture for him to lead me. He leads you down the hall, your foot falls soft on the red carpet, and at the end of the hall, he pushes open a set of double wooden doors, opening up into what is essentially a makeshift brothel. The living area of this house has been dressed up as a sort of sitting room. There's various clients lazing around on lounge chairs with scantily clad women wrapped around their shoulders. There's a staircase leading up to the second floor and you can just hear the moaning of women in the throes of sexual pleasure. None of the clients look up at you as you enter and Johnson quickly leads you through the sitting room to another hallway on the other side. This one conveniently hidden by the light that gets dimmer and dimmer the deeper into the building you get. You're almost in pitch black darkness when you reach the end of this hallway. Another door, and Johnson knocks on it. He waits for no response. He simply says, Someone to see you, sir. They insisted, and I believe they are of your persuasion. And then he turns, looks at you, and says, Best of luck and shuffles down the hallway back into the brothel area. You wait for a moment, then you hear a voice on the other side of the door. Enter, whoever you are. I open the door and then enter the room and take stock of my surroundings. On the other side of the door is something of an office. It's furnished in purple carpet. There's potted fern in one of the corners and in the centre of the room, drawing your attention instantly to it, is 
expensive-looking mahogany desk. Seated behind it is a broad-shouldered man with shoulder-length blonde hair wearing a dirty off-white coloured suit. Around his neck is a gold chain and an Egyptian unk hangs from it. He smiles as you enter, revealing his fangs. I smile widely, revealing a mouthful of mine. Remove, I remove the dentures and, dentures and put them in my pocket. He <laughs> raises an eyebrow as he sees this, taken aback for a moment. I then open my jacket, pull the axe off my belt loop, and then place it next to the door and enter, showing a... The man gestures to a leather armchair in front of the desk, silently inviting you to take a seat. I do so, and I sit across from him. As you sit across from him, he stares at you, still saying nothing. His eyes seem to linger on your teeth. And then he says, Well, it's obvious you're new in town. Why don't you start with who you are? Yes. Alexander Pierce. He holds out a hand. Sebastian Wilde. I take his hand and I shake it. He says, now, looking at those teeth you got there, I gotta say, you're certainly no child of set and, if I had to hazard a guess, no normal child of Cain either. Let's keep the accident my parentage aside for a moment. He shrugs. Don't suppose you've presented yourself to the Camarilla yet? If the prince knew about you, I'm sure I would have heard it. Fresh off the boat, unfortunately. Thank you very much. He nods. And Refreshments? He gestures towards a wine bottle on the desk. You notice it's about half full of blood. I wave him up and I go, well, I appreciate the sentiment. My proclivities are more specific. He nods and he says, well, perhaps I can help with those proclivities. It, It depends. You're fresh off the boat and rather than presenting yourself to the prince, You come to a follower of Set. What is your purpose in Melbourne, my friend? Well, traditionally, one is to present himself to the Prince of Mealy for however rare opportunity, and that I can claim ignorance as to and where the prince resides, and that I need some guidance in that general direction. And also to get a outsider's view of the prince and his domain. And I figure what better outsider than those who watch over the open and brothels of this 
Sebastian leans back in his chair. You hear it creak as he does so. Folds his arms and he says, You're no child of Set, but you think like one. He chuckles and then he says, I have no love for the Camarilla or indeed this so-called prince, this prince who makes it his business to outlaw the very lifelines that my kind rely on. What do you wish to know? But of course, remember, information is a commodity. And if you wish to have a friend in this city, you might have to put something up of your own. I sit, I sit back in my chair and lean back. And I go, the information I seek isn't outside the realms of what a typical kindred would be able to provide for me. And also you have the rare opportunity to influence the view of a newly arrived kindred without prior influence of the prince. Make do with that what you will and tell me what you will. He thinks for a moment and he says, hmm, well, the prince of this city is Montague Litton. A Toreador of the seventh generation, as he will endlessly inform every newcomer into this domain. And his goal at the moment, as I understand it, is to leverage the gold coming uh, coming down from Ballarat and the gold fields to build Melbourne into his own version of the great European capitals. You see, I, you, we are both outcasts, as it were, distrusted by the Camarilla, but little does Montague realise that the Camarilla here are little more than outcasts from Europe, and so he desperately claws for any claim to fame or influence he can find. He reaches into his breast pocket. He pulls out a little brass pocket watch, flips it open, checks the time, and he says, it is just after 8 p.m. He would be holding Elysium now at the Queen's Theatre. If you would like to go and poke around, but that's up to you. As you, as you move to stand up, he holds out a hand and he says, Now, I've given you information to get you started in this city. He narrows his eyes as he looks at you. I don't know how long you've been away from your sire, 
but kindred deal in boons, and I've rendered you one, which means you must return the favour. Do you understand? You will invoke the right of boons. I have a trifling information such as that. Well, very well. He says... Something minor. He says, indeed, I have informed you where the prince holds Elysium, and I've informed you of his greatest desire. A very useful piece of someone looking to make waves upon arriving in the city. Someone who has the element of surprise and no prior connections. He says, so, something minor then. He says, there's a girl who's under, a girl on my payroll. Her name is Melissa Hargraves. And she has not been in for work for two nights now. Last she was here, there was a customer who took an unhealthy fascination with her and had to be expelled from the premises. I suspect he had something to do with this disappearance. I was going to uh, get Johnson on the task, but, uh, well, I have you here and I consider it, I figure it should be simple enough for you to find out where this man is, find out what he knows of Melissa and if possible, bring her back to me, ready to work. He says, I have the customer's name. He goes by the name Reuben Bannon. And, uh, well, he said he was from up Carlton Way. We don't have an address, but he was cosy with uh, a couple of the regular patrons here. Johnson can tell you about them. And uh, before he settled on Melissa, he did have uh, a couple of awkward encounters with some of the other girls. Perhaps either of them might have information for you. Very well. I'll speak to your doorman. He nods. He says, by all means, Attend to it whenever you wish, but I would appreciate if Emily is still alive, she'd be brought back before the night is done. He says, and if you do this for me, you will have proven your worth and I will extend an offer of my personal friendship. You've just arrived in the city and you'll be needing a place to stay and I can provide. I nod, and then I leave, taking my axe with me. Pick up your axe, and you step out of the office, and as you make your way back down the hall towards the brothel, you see Johnson waiting for you at the end. He's fidgeting nervously, shifting back and forth. 
he expected that bringing a stranger into his boss's office would only result in terrible things. So he's surprised to see you walking unharmed towards him. He positively jumps on the spot and then he says, Oh, uh, sir, your, your meeting went well, I presume. Yes. Now, Ruben Battle. Ah, right, yes, uh, he was in two nights ago, uh, caused a stir and had to be uh, ejected from the premises. The girls he saw, please. Hmm, he thinks for a moment. One would be Stella, she's not in tonight. But the other one... Prudence, yes, he saw Prudence and she's... He thinks for a moment. Oh, she's with a client at the moment. He's got her booked for the next hour, I'm afraid. Give him a discount. Which room are they in? He looks at you, hesitating for a moment, and he says, I... I can't let you intrude on a customer, sir. I... The establishment's reputation. Is he armed? He. Uh, no, no, no. I'm saying I'm asking you. Is he armed? Oh, is no, no. Johnson does not appear to be armed. Not that you can see. I shrug and I go. The proprietor will. Be supportive of this action. Make a manipulation persuasion check. No, three successes. Three successes. He nods vigorously. Uh, yes, yes, right, right. Whatever Mr. Wilde wants. Uh, room number three. The one with the love heart on the door. Uh, up the stairs, take the left. It's right there. Uh, as you step, oh, as you as you begin to move past him, he he says, "Just if you could do it without causing fuss, I would really appreciate it." I open the door and I step in. <laughs> Make your way upstairs and. Find room number three. Someone's someone stuck a brass number three, nailed it into the door, and there's a love heart painted on the surface of the door. You just grab the doorknob, fling it open, and step in. Immediately you see a pink bedsheet thrown up in the air as a woman scrambles to scrambles to hide her body. A man in the nude flips out of bed and reaches for the bedside table where there's a switchblade. He flips out the blade and he looks at it and he says, What the fuck? He's, he's my whore! What the fuck are you walking in on a... Uh, walking in on a paying customer and uh, get your own! I step towards him and I go... You get one shot, try it, and then I 
part my duster, revealing my bloody shirt and the hatchet that hangs on the side. Make a manipulation intimidation check, please. to lose fluster almost immediately uh, and the wind is knocked out of him. He gazes upon the dried blood stains on your shirt and the fresh ones too. He takes a step back. He lowers his switchblade and he says, I... Don't worry. Won't be 15 minutes and then you can return to your activities. Don't worry. There won't be any deposits you have to work your way through. Give us the room. He nods. He starts scrambling for his clothes, throws on a jacket and some pants, and then shuffles out of the room, giving you one last glance as he shuts the door. The woman, uh, petite, blonde-haired girl of maybe no older than 19 or 20, sits there on the bed, the bedsheet wrapped around her body. She peers at you, her eyes wide with apprehension, her mouth open with a mixture of awe and horror. She says nothing. I take your seat in front of her and go, I won't be long, and then you'll likely never see me again. She looks at you, and and she pulls the sheets tighter around herself, and she shakes her head, and she says, oh, I, I, I charge five shillings for, uh, for a one-time... I'm here about Reuben Bannon. I'm trying to bring Melissa back home. So if any assistance you provide would be much appreciated. Thank you very much. Make a manipulation persuasion check. One dice penalty due to your obvious predator flaw. Uh, manipulation. Very well. Manipulation the... persuasion minus one die. Yeah, oh, three successes. She visibly calms a little bit. She's still eyeing you with apprehension, and she doesn't move. Doesn't unwrap. The sheet, she just frowns and she says, Yeah, Reuben Bannon, what about him here? Just tell me what you know, and address would be good. He, uh, she thinks for a moment. Well, Melissa, she thought she knew what she was getting into. She said she'd been with guys like him before and she had a way of calming them down. He was very handsy. Came to me and to Stella. Very, very handsy. And when we tried to push him off, he... He he said he was gonna... He said if we... Fucked around, we would end up like the others under his floorboards at his house at his house in Carlton and well uh, you know we, we didn't want Melissa to be with him either but 
she said she thought he was just bluffing. You know, a lot of men come in here and they run their mouths. There's a lot of sailors and workers in this town and you know, they're always trying to one-up each other. And, well, he, obviously he just... She, she thought that he was just here getting a kick out of <laughs> scaring the girls, you know? And she says... That should be more than sufficient. Thank you very much. She recites the address to you and she says, Here, he said it like, you know, as if, as if, you know, daring us to go there and see that he wasn't bluffing, but. And then she says, I, I leave. You leave. And as you do, as you step out, you see the, the customer waiting on the other side. And as soon as you exit, he just looks at you silently asking for your permission to go back in. Go on. He just nods, he shuffles back into the room and the door slams shut behind him. Johnson stands at the top of the stairs, his arms crossed. He looks over at you and he says, Somehow you didn't convince him to run off screaming or to try and punch somebody, so I call that a win. Girl ends up giving you anything you can go on? More than enough. Um, I'll need a carriage. He nods. He says, "All right, I'll, uh, I'll uh, have one arranged for you. Uh, where are you heading to?" Carlton. Carlton, right. Here's the address. He Take looks. He nods. He says, "All right, I'll have a carriage. Uh, I'll have a carriage waiting for you. Uh, just." Uh, Wait ten minutes and head outside. Uh, can I offer you refreshments, anything, to pass the time? No, I'm good. You stand there in the brothel, just standing, leaning against the wall, scanning the room silently, occasionally catching the eye of the patrons or the girls. Every time you do, they seem to shudder and instinctually look away. And after ten minutes, you see Johnston step back into the brothel and gestures for you to follow him. He leads you back through the entrance hall and into the street outside. And there is a black carriage. Seated at the front is a man with a long brown beard. He's holding the reins of the Clydesdale horse in his hands. He gestures to you. Help in! Take a seat in my... Tell him the address. Climb into the carriage. He says, off to Carton, are we? He says, ah, don't worry about the fare. <laughs> Mr. Wilde's already covered that. He pulls the reins. Yeah! And the horse begins to make its way up the dirt road into the city proper. As the carriage jostles back and forth, the man tries to strike up a conversation. So, uh, Carlton, not much there except, uh... How? Uh, not much there except uh, some shitty houses uh, and trouble, <laughs> if I'm honest. Just taking that. Not much of a conversation unless he says, all right, we'll be there soon enough. Do you do anything as you journey to Carlton? Do you just head inside the carriage? Just head inside the carriage. Head inside the carriage and... You just watch as 
Melbourne passes by the stock exchange, crawls past, and then a bank, and then a train station, and soon the developed part of the city falls behind. The red brick buildings are once again replaced with the ramshackle slum that exists outside of the downtown area. It's clear that over the last couple of years, the city has seen a huge influx of population and it hasn't yet quite figured out where to put all these people. Carlton doesn't look much the same as any of the other slums you pass through, but apparently you're here as the carriage jolts to a stop. You hear the horse grunt as it's clopping ceases and the driver says, Oh, Carlton, we're here. You take a step out and too deep breath of the night air. The driver nods. He says, uh, want me to wait or uh, you got your own way back? Won't be too long. Right. I'll head to the end of the road, get Bessie here a drink and, uh, I'll be here when you need me, he says. And then he spurs the horse further down the road towards... Actually, before yep. you go, I shove my jacket off and I put in the... the um... Throw it in the carriage? Yeah. Throw your jacket over the seat in the carriage and as you take it off, the driver sees your shirt. Uh, he opens his mouth, but... In the end, he just says, hmm, well, Mr. Wilde didn't pay me to answer questions. Uh, pub there at the end of the street. I'll tie my horse up to the trough. I'll be waiting. All right. Um, as I step into the street, I activate um, enhanced senses again. This time, I'm enhancing my sense of smell. Enhancing your sense of smell. And what are you hoping to detect? The familiar scent of rotten flesh. Mm. Go ahead and make for me a wits plus awareness or investigation. Wits. Check. Awareness. Or investigation, and you may add your ore specs to it. So. Wits. Awareness or specs. Uh, I've got one skull on the blood dice, Ooh. but I have a crit. Yeah, you have a crit. So. so two, four, six, six, six. Yeah. So you begin to stroll up the street, walking along the side, past the ramshackle houses, past the occasional side street or fenced-in yard. A worker passes by, he glances at you, and he says, Piss off, mate! I ignore him. He continues on, and... Your nostrils sniff the air like a bloodhound. It's faint at first, very, very faint, but then you detect it. That bittersweet smell of decaying flesh. Not too old, perhaps 
half a day at most. It's still what you would call ripe if you were hungry. And indeed, even though you stepped out on the docks well fed, the beast still grumbles, stirs within the pit of your stomach. It, it's aware that something edible is close by. Do you wish to follow the scent? Yes. You follow the scent, stopping every few steps to sniff. The scent grows stronger and stronger, leads you down the main street through an alleyway between two stone and wood buildings that are presumably some... Are presumably some business establishment shuttered up for the night. You walk past a newly painted billboard advertising canned fruit fresh from New South Wales. And then you come to the end of this side street and uh, the scent, you can smell it, your beast purrs. You distantly hear Father Connolly's voice. Mm, you know what you want, boy. The hunger cannot be denied. Give in. Give in. The smell is emanating from a single-story brick house. It's slightly off the road. There's a dirt trail running across a ditch and through a field of about knee-length dried grass to what must be what must have been at one point a farmstead that's with time just been swallowed up by the extending urban sprawl and this house is the source of the smell I walk to the front door and I rap upon it yep you step up onto the patio and walk towards the front door. Clench your fist. Rap, rap, rap. There's no response. The smell is intense now, almost overwhelming your senses. Rotting flesh, dead flesh is meters away. Perhaps just on the other side of this door. I take my axe off my belt loop and then I use the blunt of it to smash the doorknob off. Go ahead and make for me a strength melee check. Four successes. You grip your axe, then you call the blood to surge through your body and bring it down. Smash! The doorknob breaks off along with a chunk of the door. And then open the door and step in. Push open the door, step in, and on the other side of the door is what appears to be a living room. There's... 
cotton upholstered armchair and a wooden coffee table. They're both spattered with blood at the moment. Lying spread eagled on the carpet between them is a man roughly in his late 20s, early 30s. The right side of his skull has been caved in by a blunt object, a lampshade lying next to him, the glass of the glass of the candle wick, the glass around the candle wick broken and spattered with blood. And as you step in, you hear a gasp, and then you see doused Obscured in shadow, a slender silhouette dart out through the door on the other side of the room, further into the house. I follow her. Follow her? You step over the body and follow her through the doorway. It leads down another hallway to a bedroom and a bathroom. Bathroom on the left, bedroom on the right. You don't know which one she's gone into. I come out here on behalf of your employer. We're just going to go home. I have a carriage. Don't have to worry. Just follow me. Go ahead and make a charisma persuade check for me and one die penalty due to your obvious predator flaw. Charisma. Sorry, did I say charisma. Charisma persuasion and one die penalty. Sure. Uh, no successes. No successes. There's silence for a moment, and you're about to call out again. Then suddenly, the bathroom door is flung open and a woman dressed in nothing but a silk nightie comes charging at you, a blood-stained butcher's knife in her right hand. As she runs towards you, she shouts, I've done it once, I'll do it again! I just take it. Just take it, let her stab you. She rushes towards you, and I'm going to make her roll a melee check, and she's not very good at it, to be fair. That's two successes. She slams the butcher knife into your chest. You take one point of superficial damage, and the blade sticks there in your shirt, the handle sticking out of your chest. Um, now I'll... Oh, I can't reduce it any more than one count through fortitude. No. Yeah. You'll if she but she only got two successes, so yeah. yeah. <sighs> She's grab <laughs> yep. the I grab the knife and pull it out of me and then open up my shirt and reveal a tiny little wound. As you do this, the woman stops in her tracks, her mouth drops open and she looks at you, she grits her teeth, and she says, why, why didn't you go down? I, when I, I stabbed him, he fell straight over, and I grabbed the lamp, and... She looks left to right. You see her desperately looking for another weapon to assault you with. A clocker in the jaw, aiming for a knockout. Go ahead, uh, make a strength brawl check. 
successes. Four successes. You rush towards her. She raises her hands to try to defend herself, but there's nothing she can do. You clench your fist and smack her on the side of the head and she just drops to the floor like a dead weight, instantly unconscious. I... Is there a carpet on the floor? In the hallway? No. It's just wooden. In the living room? In the living room, yes. It's currently stained with presumably Reuben Bannon's blood. I... take the girl and I drag her to the living room and I roll her up in the carpet. Um... I then take the butcher's knife to try to murder with me with and use it to open up Reuben's chest cavity. Extract the bloodstained carpet from under Reuben. After a few minutes, you've wrapped the woman up within it and you lean over Reuben, grab the butcher's knife, plunge it into his chest and cut through the flesh. He's been dead long enough that the blood has begun to congeal and it just sort of leaks out of the wound as you cut him open, but his organs are fresh enough. I take my pick and devour all his choiciest meats. And then... I slice my thumb open on my teeth and drop a single drop of detail onto the corpse, cooling up the petals and oblivion to reduce his body to ash. Go ahead and make a rouse check for me, please, and make an oblivion plus resolve check. Uh, it's a failure on the rouse check. Yep, so you get hungrier, hunger too. Um, will that be mitigated by the fact that I'm having a meal while this is happening? Yes. Cool. So hunger one. Um, and then the roll is... Resolve plus Oblivion. Resolve plus Oblivion. Uh, that is two successes. Finish gorging yourself. The organs are fresh enough that they still have taste, but not much. There's no resonance. And when you're done, you splash some of your vitae, your vitae on the corpse. It doesn't make you hungrier, and as you whisper the rites you were taught by your sire, you see the body begin to fall apart before your eyes. A few seconds later, there's nothing but a patch of soot and ash on the floorboards. I then take the rolled carpet with Melissa in it and sling it over my shoulder. As you lift her up and sling her over your shoulder, I'd like you to make a wits awareness check for me. Uh, Wits awareness. Uh, That is two successes. Two successes. As you 
hoist her over your shoulder and take a step towards the entrance of the house, you hear the sound of boots crunching on gravel outside. Alright, I'll take the back exit then. Yep. You make your way back down the hallway, move past the bedroom and the bathroom, and there's a single thin wooden door here. You reach over to open it, but it doesn't budge. Seems Reuben Bannon is paranoid enough that he's boarded it from the other side so that people can't sneak in through the back. Alright, I was able to kick it open. Go ahead, make me a strength brawl check. One, two, three, four, five successes. Smash! You kick through the door, the board on the other side snaps and the door flings open. You step out into the backyard. Most of it is covered in knee-high, unruly grass, but you see a couple of patches in the backyard, two or three where the grass is shorter and, well, you've been around enough dead bodies to realise that some have been buried here in the recent past. Perhaps there was some truth to what Reuben was saying. I leave with the girl doubling back behind the AI and trying to avoid being seen to where the um, uh, carriage is. Yep, make a uh, wits stealth check for me, please. I have stealth. So do. And. Uh, that is one success. You peek around the corner of the house to see the dirt trail leading up to its entrance. And you see a you see a man making his way towards the house. You could just about make out his body shape. He's quite tall and you can see the distinct shape of what looks like a flintlock hunting rifle around his shoulder. As he makes his way towards the house, he calls out, Hey, Reuben, mate, we got to get rid of that girl. Word on the street is wild. Got someone out looking for her? You wait until he moves past, and then you try to move as fast as you can between the house into cover behind a copse of trees, in between the house and the street, and I'm going to get him to make a... He makes a wits awareness check, and as you're about halfway between the house and the copse of trees, your boot loudly crunches against a twig, snapping it, and that's enough to alert the man. He's got highly 
highly honed senses. He whips the rifle off his shoulder, whirls around and sees you standing there, a roll of carpet slung over your shoulder. He registers the bloodstains on your shirt and on the carpet and then he points his rifle and he says, Oi, the fuck you doing around here? I place the carpet down on the ground and then I steadily walk towards you with my hands in the air. Raise your hands. He doesn't lower the rifle. He lets you put the carpet down. He points the rifle at you. And then he says, This is the Bannon Gang's territory. What are you doing poking around back there? I just start slowly, inexorably walk towards him. Still holding his rifle, he looks towards the rolled up carpet. He says, what you got in there? No, don't come any closer, mate. I just keep walking at him. One more step and I'll fucking blow you away. I keep walking at him. He tightens his finger on the trigger. Make a manipulation intimidation check. And I'm going to get him to make a resolve plus composure check. Uh, I've got two successes. Two successes to his three. You take one more step towards him. His finger squeezes the trigger. Bang! He fires his rifle. And would you like to do anything as you hear the rifle go off? Uh, do I have to rouse for toughness to work? Yes. You have to rouse for toughness to work now. So make a rouse check. Yeah. I'm just going to quickly double check if there's toughness or resilience or one. No, no, uh, oh yeah, it might be res... No, it's toughness, because resilience just adds your fortitude to your health track. Uh, you want toughness to soak the damage. So, resilience... One rouse checks... Sure, I will rouse. Alright, go ahead. Um, I am at hunger two. Hunger two. Alright, so you're activating toughness. Bang! The bullet fires. The blood surges through your body, hardening your skin. The bullet slams into centre mass. He rolled two successes, so with his rifle being a plus two, that is four superficial damage. How much do you soak? I will soak three of those from thing in the remainder gets hard. Yeah, yeah, so it's still one. So you take one point of superficial damage. He watches the bullet slide into your centre mass. But you don't fall over. You just keep walking. He begins to squeeze the trigger again, but then he realises he has to reload the gun. So he takes a step back and starts fumbling for the lever, his finger missing it several times. And I walk up to him and I get my axe and I attempt to bury it in his head. Go ahead, make a strength melee check. He's going to attempt to block it with a strength brawl check. One, two, three, four. And I get my... Um... One, two... And I get an extra dice from the focus, yes? For yes, axe. yeah, for axe. That's right. One, two, three, four. Uh, eight dice total. Ah, oh, fuck it, I'm going to eat anyway. Let's, uh... <laughs> rouse. <laughs> let's rouse. All right, two extra dice. Uh, I'm at hunger three. Two extra dice. Oh, no. 
Oh, and do remember, because your blood potency two, you get extra to your fortitude um, if you have to roll for it, which we didn't do with toughness, but when you do defy... Oh, that, yeah, I get to, I get to yeah. roll the rounds. Yes, yeah. Oh, is oh no, no, wait, no, no, it's... It's, it's, rank, it's a rank two. Yeah, it's rank two, that's right, yeah. Uh, that is... One, two, three, four successes. Four successes to his two successes. He sees you walk towards him, and as you raise your axe, he holds out the gun in a vain attempt to so, parry it. Uh, I think the axe is plus... Two yeah, it's damage. plus two, yeah. So it's four points of damage. Yeah, four points of damage. He holds out the gun to try and vainly parry the blow. You smash the axe down, knocking the gun out of his hand and then burying it into the front of his body. He takes four points of super f- of um, aggravated damage yep. and he staggers backwards, blood gushing out of his chest, but somehow he's still up. He reaches for his belt and flicks out a utility knife, something used for cutting cords and ropes down at the docks, and then clutching his chest in pain, he gasps and he just charges at you in a rage with the knife. Um, alright, well I'll attempt to finish the job with the axe. Yep, make a strength melee. We'll go against his strength melee. Now, do I... Is He's still just, buffed. He's still, still buffed for the scene. But I have to replace one of those with a blood. Alright. Uh, that is... Four successes. Four successes to his three successes. He raises the knife and charges at you and you just step deftly out of the way, raise your axe and bring it down, the blade smashing into the back of his head. His body twitches and he drops the knife. It clatters to the ground as he just falls limp on the end of your hatchet. You wrench it out of his skull and he just drops, instantly dead. What a fresh meal now. They drag the corpse behind the building and I devour him, gorging myself. You've already made a wound on his chest with your axe, so rather than cutting a new one, you just dig your hands in, rip the strength open, snapping his ribcage and shovel his innards into your mouth. 20 minutes of exquisite indulgence later, you reduce your hunger to zero and you get a resonance that he had in his heart at the moment of his death. Um, And it is... Oh, also before I... um, Eat. I'd like to rouse the blood to heal some. Ah, yes, good idea. You get to heal two soup. Yeah. Which back to full health. Full health, yep. So as you devour his remains, you get a melancholic resonance. In his last moments, he was gripped in fight or flight, and your fortitude is buffed by an extra dice until the next time you feed. 
Um, Alright. I'll go fetch the girl and return to the carriage. Yep. You pick the girl up off the ground, hoist her back over your shoulder, and leaving this man where he lies, you head down to the pub at the end of the street and there sure enough as you were told you see the carriage the horse has been tied to a pole it's drinking from the trough and as the driver sees you approach he begins to unhook the horse reattach it to the carriage and he's already sitting up on the driver's seat by the time you get to him he nods at the roll of carpet over your shoulder and he says gift for Mr. Wild." very much so I throw the girl in there and I wash my face and hands in the trough and then I then take my jacket which I left in the thing and put it over my now increasingly bloody clothes. <laughs> Your teeth are still marked with fresh blood but you're not smiling. So you sit there in the carriage and wait as it carries you back to Collins Street. I'll get him to drop me off at the Prince's Domain. Ooh, at Elysium. Yeah. Queen's Theatre, you say. He looks over his shoulder, he says, Queen's Theatre! This time of night, there aren't going to be any bloody plays! Just left me there. He shrugs, and... Before long, you're in Queen's Street, stepping off the carriage in front of the grand... Victorian playhouse that is the Queen's Theatre. It was only opened last... It was only opened within the last decade and it's still brand new. Still... Still the crowning... The crown jewel of this part of the city. There's a flyer in the front window advertising a play called The Deadly Chasm. I step to the main entrance and see if there's anyone barring my entrance. Do you leave the girl in the carriage? Yeah, I leave in the girl in the carriage for him to take the carriage back to... Driver nods, he says, All right, hope you'll be right on your way back to Wilds. Uh, expect he'll be uh, wanting to talk to you if... Uh, Fall's gone well. Yeah, he says. He spurs the Clydesdale and the carriage heads down the dirt road, leaving another row of hoof marks and cart tracks in the compacted earth. You walk towards the playhouse and find a man wearing workers' overalls standing in front of the door. In his right hand, he's holding an, he's holding an iron cudgel in plain view. And as you approach, he sees the pallor of your skin and he simply steps aside and says, The masters are within. I nod my step here. Take my dentures out of my coat pocket and put them back into my mouth. Push open the door behind him. Make your way through a reception area emblazoned with flyers for upcoming plays and head down the hallway to the theatre itself. 
As you approach it, you begin to hear the sounds of classical piano music wafting from the chamber. When you reach the door, you push it open and step into the theatre. Standing in amongst the aisles are crowds of people, at least 50 or 60 that you can see. The theatre itself is brightly lit. There are candelabras and lanterns hanging from every wall and every ceiling flooding the area in bright light. On the stage... A foppish-looking man wearing a tailcoat and rolled grey hair sits at a piano playing the music that you hear wafting through the chamber. Several other people dressed in equally foppish outfits form a circle around him. And as you enter, as you step into the theatre proper, the music suddenly stops. The man behind the piano looks up, stares in your direction, and then the murmurs of the other gathered gathered kindred quiet and fade away as one by one all of the kindred in Elysium turn to face you, silently judging you. Do you say anything? I say nothing, but I take my axe out of my belt loop and... Leave it by the door as I step in. Disarming yourself, you take a step into the theatre itself. Someone up on the stage gets up from the plush armchair they were sitting in and walks to the edge of the stage, their footfalls echoing throughout the opulent theatre. It's a A woman. It seems to be a woman. She's wearing the dress of a woman as the body shape of a woman, but her face is contorted like a demon out of your worst nightmares. Her ears are long and pointed, the top of her head covered in horns, and in place of a mouth, she has something most closely resembling an insect's mantle. She points a bony finger at you and she says, I am Simone Alvard, the Keeper of Elysium. Announce your name, clan, and allegiance. Newcomer. Alexander Pierce. Alexander Pierce. As you mention the name, murmurs flood through the room. You have a dot of infamy. So I'm going to give them an extra dice on their checks to recognise who you are. The murmurs get louder. All of the vampires assembled, still staring down at you. You hear your name pass through their lips. Alexander Pierce. Yeah, that's the, the convict. Yes, he's the cannibal. He ate all those bush rangers. But yes, he was hung when... No, so the rumours were true, and... Simone, the Nosferatu Keeper of Elysium, nods, and she says, What is your business here, Pierce? 
I believe it was custom to present myself to the prince when I nearly arrived to the city. You understand the traditions? Yes. I'm not without education. As you say this, the foppish man behind the piano stands up. He claps his hands together as he walks to the edge of the stage and he says, Come before me, newcomer. I step before him. Standing in the row in front of the stage, even though the stage is only about a metre tall, it's enough to let this little, quite waify-looking man tower over you. And as he stares down at you, there's something in his eyes that gives an air of menace that is in stark contrast to his outward appearance. Something tells you he's not the type of person to be messed with. He looks down at you. He says, I am am Montague Litton, prince of this domain, appointed by the Archons of the Camarilla and formerly of London's court. From where do you hail, Alexander Pierce? And who be your sire? Alexander Pierce. I hail from Van Diemen's land. Originally from Ireland. And my sire is Father Connolly. The prince nods, exchanges a glance with someone standing next to him. Very, very tall, heavy set man with long silver hair. The silver haired man nods, and then the prince says, I am unaware of any Camarilla that have established a domain in Van Diemen's land, and I have not heard of this Father Connolly. Yet, You seem to know the tradition, so I am to assume he is at the very least not an enemy of the Camarilla. He is not. He sent me here on his behalf to make contact and establish ourselves with him. Contact? He says, he smiles as he says this. He looks exchanges glances with those beside him and you hear some of the other vampires let out a subdued giggle. Montague chuckles to himself and he says, make contact as if, as if your sire is a prince or something. (laughs) Like I said, there are no Camarilla domains in Van Diemen's land. Your prince is... Your sire is rather, well, sure of themselves, confident that I would even acknowledge you as an ambassador and welcome you on equal terms and not just simply hear your name and turf you out onto the street like every other neonate that passes through on their way to and from the goldfields.
I smile. And I go. The finer points of diplomacy amongst kindred are still a mystery to me, I will say. However, I come bearing no ill will and seek to prove myself useful to your court. A fledgling! So. He looks around once more. This. this prince, this. 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 Father Connolly seeks to make contact with our court and sends a fledgling unschooled in the subtleties of kindred politics. He just smiles and then he looks at you. He says, are you aware of what you have walked into, Mr. Pierce? Analyze him. In a place where I'm assumed to have safe passage to and from and during the proceedings, provided I adhere to the sacred traditions that govern your society as is, as it governs ours. Make a manipulation and etiquette or politics check for me. No successes. Actually, I might will point that. Yep, willpower. Go ahead. Spend uh, three. Three. The prince smiles and he says, Well, you're not entirely out of your depth. You know where you are and, well, you know how to defer to your betters. I'll give you that. He nods and he says, Perhaps, perhaps you may be useful to me. But... I have not heard of your sire, and that makes you even more of an unknown to me. Please, indulge me. What clan do you call yourself a member of, Mr. Pierce? I pull my dentures out of my mouth and smile and burn my teeth, extending them long so they're each one is over a foot long and my mouth is distended and then I go perhaps this would be illuminating most of the kindred in the room simply murmur as they see you reveal your teeth but you see a look of recognition on the face of the silver haired man he steps towards the prince leans forwards, whispers something in his ear. The prince nods, the smile on his face instantly fades, peers down at you, and he says, My sheriff here, my Bruja sheriff knows your kind. (laughs) He smiles once more. And he says, Conrad Shrek says that you are of a bloodline known as Nagaraja, the Flesh Eaters. 
And as he says the word flesh eaters, the murmuring amongst the other kindred stops and the theatre is once again eerily silent. They may not have heard of Nagaraja, but they've heard whispered tales of the flesh eaters, the kindred so monstrous that even other kindred are reviled by them. That's wild. Retract my teeth and return to my normal facade, taking my dentures out of my pocket and turning into my mouth. As you do this, the prince steps closer to the edge of the stage. He folds his arms and he peers down at you and he says... I said, you s- go. I said, perhaps it is our reputation as to why my sire sends pledgedly perhaps one of years of experience maybe to well let's say fledgling maybe less intimidating to the court indeed says the prince you say you mean no harm but your clan brings nothing but trouble whenever it shows its face in civilized company so humor me he smiles narrows his eyes as they turn bright yellow staring directly into your face piercing your outer facade and scrying your soul please make a composure plus subterfuge check Uh, I'll run the spot for this. Go ahead. I do not get Get hungrier. Uh, That is um, burning on willpower. Burning on willpower. Go ahead. Uh, That is three successes. Three successes to his three successes. He frowns as he stares into your face, bites his bottom lip, and he says, I can tell you fed recently, despite the fact you claim to know the traditions, but I must say I'm impressed. Your sire has taught you how to guard your thoughts. Your intentions here? are unknown to me and I'm forced to take you at your word I smile there is much we can offer I take it your court is lacking in those that have knowledge of the dead. The prince just shrugs and he says, there were Giovanni here once, but we did not get off on the right foot and they've headed out to G-Town. 
no one here in this domain knows the secrets of necromancy. Am I right in assuming that you are offering your services to the court? I seek to be a member of your society. Nothing more, nothing less. A privilege extended to every and do you intend to call this city your home? He smiles. It seems like you're winning him over and you notice Conrad Shrek, the Bruiser, Sheriff next to him is just frowning as he regards you with utter contempt. The prince seems to completely ignore him. And he says, uh, one final question for you, Pierce. You've obviously been in town long enough to feed. And so I must ask, and I implore you to be truthful. Have you made contact with any other kindred within this domain? Yes, I have. And I did a small job for him, which there was minor complications. However, nothing and nothing if not discreet. And there'll be nothing to lead any inconveniences back to a doorstep. He nods. The Setite, he says, Sebastian Wilde. I'm sure gonna go. He runs a brothel at the port. This is only natural that he would be the first kindred that any that come through that route would interact with. The Bruha sheriff nods and he says, <laughs> Spider everything's got some sense in him. The prince smiles and says, and Wilde would have told you just as he tells every neonate that winds up in his brothel passing through this domain on their way to the gold fields that I desire nothing more than to line my pocket with riches so that I can pretend play act at being Mithras. I smile and I shrug my shoulders and I go... He... has his view and you seem to be a good enough prince to understand your subjects. Well, I'll not get in the way of a boon, an honest boon made between two kindred. You've made an impression on me and... For what it's worth, if you did mean any harm, I believe you wouldn't have made it this far into Elysium. So there is that. You may see the end results of your boon with Sebastian Wilde. I presume he's furnished you with, what, a place to stay, information? Standard affair. Hmm. Whatever place he gives you, 
I will recognize it as your domain. I would appreciate that. What I ask is that you be here when the court requires your services, that you may put them to use serving the Camarilla, and who knows if it turns out that we become the best of friends, then perhaps you may do something to make your sire proud and be able to return to him saying you've accomplished something. This is the way of things. Is there anything else you require of me, Prince? The Prince thinks for a moment. Then he gestures his hands out, showcasing the entire theatre. And he says... It's your first night. <laughs> Take in the sights. Relax. When I have need of your services, I know where to find you. That's wild. Welcome to Melbourne, Alexander Pierce, says Montague Lytton, his hands outreached towards you as if about to embrace you as a friend. I smile and I bow towards him. My prince. And that concludes this session. When you return to Sebastian Wilde's brothel later that night, after you've spent several hours in Elysium, being introduced to many of Melbourne's movers and shakers, in addition to the prince... Salvatore Lytton, there are the Primogen, Lady Eliza Worthington, a English socialite who, despite all appearances, is the Primogen of the Gangrel, Matthew Bluey Cousins, a Malkavian with a look on his face that is constantly calculating and analysing things that only he can see. The Keeper of Elysium, Simone Alvard, the Primogen of the Nosferatu, and Naomi McKellar, an heir to an old English family, old money, and the Ventru Primogen. When you return to Sebastian Wilde's he says nothing. He simply smiles and says, I heard you went to Elysium. No matter. No need to explain yourself. Every kindred must play both sides, and I would not begrudge you that. I said, this custom to present yourself to Indeed it is. It would have been inconvenience had I not. And for what it's worth, you've returned Melissa to me. Battered, bruised, but none the worse for wear. A few days of bed rest, and she'll be back to work. <laughs> and, as promised, Domain. He says, 
my family, the wilds. When I was mortal, they prepared a spot for me in the family crypt at the Melbourne Cemetery. And obviously, in my current state of being, I will never occupy that spot. You may make the crypt your own, and do with it as you wish. <laughs> my ancestors do not care, and I will not worry about sullying their resting place with a stranger. After all, I answer only to set. few nights later, you end up visiting Melissa at the brothel. You receive a message from Sebastian Wilde passed through Jonathan, and you're told to come to the brothel so that Melissa can thank you. You're invited upstairs to room number four. This one has a blue bird clumsily painted on the wooden surface, and when you enter, you see Melissa seated on the edge of the bed, dressed in an elegant evening gown. Aside from the slight bruise on her head, just visible under her blonde hair, she seems no worse for wear. She doesn't say much. She simply looks at you and she says, I, I killed because I killed because that's what I needed to do to survive. That's true. <laughs> she says, but I'm aware that you came looking for me and well, you could have killed me. I attacked without warning. I, I was hysterical. I thought, I thought you were one of Bannon's friends and well, I was willing to do anything to get out of there alive, but you didn't kill me. You, you brought me back. I smile at her. The death was unnecessarily impossible. She nods not quite understanding it yet. There's still a ways for her to go before she understands what it truly means to take someone's life. But she nods and she just says, I thank you. And well, if I would know your name, I will call you a friend. She nods. Melissa Hargraves, and I get the impression you're not like the others. You, you didn't do this just for a free fuck. There's something different about you. No. <laughs> Anyone else, Mr. Wild Scent, would have. Well, I'm not sure if they would have even taken the time to help me, to be honest. After all, what's a whore who's too beaten up to fuck? But here I am, 
and I have you to thank. So if there's anything I can do for you, all you have to do is ask. Be wary of what you offer. Might take you off from that. And then I leave. You gain three experience points. And you may add Melissa down as your touchstone and her conviction killing is for survival. That was Heart of Darkness, episode one in A Century of Flesh, a DM Fiat special solo Vampire the Masquerade actual play campaign using 5th edition rules recorded in person with DM Fiat as storyteller and Thomas Saurus as Alexander Pierce. Music by Kevin McLeod, used with permission. Vampire the Masquerade and all associated intellectual properties belong to Paradox Game Studios.